I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Hello, hello. Hi, Jen. Our other producer um, really likes the duvet I bought from Ikea (laughs) and left about 20 minutes into the other episode we just did, so it's fine. She's a good little bed warmer, so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I did not peek at the Google Doc for this one, so I have no idea what you're going to do. Amazing. Um, You're going to do amazing? I have no doubt. I mean, I... This woman is amazing. Um, I'm going to do my best. Um, (laughs) She is a number of really kind of incredible things. Um, She's the first African-American woman to join the Coast Guard. Um, Spoilers, man. Lead up to it. You know what I mean? I figured. You're just going to jump to the end. That's actually the middle. Um, Oh, Oh, there's more. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. Um, Sort of a nice... (laughs) Like a story. Like a story. Um, (laughs) Chapters, if you will. The beginning, her name is Olivia Hooker. She is born 12 February 1915 in Oklahoma. Her father owns clothing store in the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Greenwood is home to what is known at this point in time um, as Black Wall Street. It is this incredibly thriving, um, fairly wealthy African-American community, and it is sort of the largest concentration of Black-owned businesses anywhere in the country. Sorry, what city? It's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In Tulsa? Yeah, which I was kind of interested. What an odd... Of all of the okay. pla- right of all of the places, um, why not? I guess. I mean, what do I know? But um, yeah. But it's, okay. so the, the the sort of reasoning behind it, there's a couple of different factors that lead to this being this particular place. One of them is that the Native American tribes who had been forcibly removed from the American South throughout the 19th century are mostly relocated to Oklahoma before it becomes a state. It's known as Indian Territory, and a lot of escaped slaves have a relationship with these Native American tribes. And in addition, some of them were actually slave-owning prior to the Civil War. So there's sort of a long-term relationship between African Americans and Native Americans in what will become Oklahoma. Can we see that version of the musical? Wouldn't that be so much more interesting? That would be very interesting. Although they're apparently doing, not to sidetrack too much, but they're doing a remount that's supposed to be like Mm. super edgy and interesting. I mean, okay. And there's only so edgy you can be with, like, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow. Like, it's just, I mean. Yeah. I think I should come out and say Oklahoma okay. is not one of my favorite musicals by a oh, long why? stretch. It's such a treat for the eyes and ears. Oh, hate it. The horrific accents written with, like, so many apostrophes. Despise it. But we don't and need yet to they do that. that weird thing of like showboat where they just like bust into operatic style singing. I know that's not probably not what it's called, but like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, like the Metropolitan Opera shows up to sing like arias in the middle of like a hayfield. Anyway, OK, the hayfield's not correct. I'm so not from a farm. OK, go ahead. <laughs> so in addition to that, um, Oklahoma, there's a series of massive land sales in 1889, 1890, and 1891. And then there's an oil boom in the 1910s. Mm. And so it's... It's funny how you can sell land that you... Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Okay. It's just... Right. It's great. Oklahoma <laughs> is definitely one of the shining beacons on American history. Ugh. Just writ large. Looks like a frying pan. That's all I know. Okay, <laughs> let's keep going. And so the... The neighborhood in Tulsa develops because of all of these factors into a hub, not just of black business, but also black professionals. Um, Some of the nation's top um, African-American lawyers and doctors live and work there. And it is both because of strong community and national support that it thrives, but also because Oklahoma 
half the time, and Tulsa in particular has very strict segregation laws in place. So it's the one of the only places in the state where African Americans can get access to goods and services a lot of the time. Which leads us to the 1921 Tulsa race riot, or as it's now more commonly referred to, race massacre. Oh, no. Yeah, we're going to start real super positive. I promise it gets better. It actually it gets okay. so much better, but we're going to start in like depressing. One would hope if we're starting at massacre that it would maybe get a better, but you know. The no guarantees on the Missing History probably Podcast. Probably not in the... <laughs> This is a novella called America. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened at the race massacre? So uh, in... Here's my wine. Um, Memorial Day 1921, a young... On a holiday. Yep. Ugh. You're just trying to have a three-day weekend, cook a burger, remember things, because it's Memorial Day, and who decided to be an idiot? Everyone, basically. Yeah, oh, great. So, was it too hot that day or something? It was something. A young white female elevator operator is allegedly assaulted by a young black man in an elevator. Of course, there being no evidence for this. The young man is quickly identified as Dick Rowland, who's 19. He is arrested and taken to the courthouse jail. And pretty quickly, a large crowd of angry white people show up and they are demanding his release so that they can lynch him Uh. upon hearing about this a group of black men from the greenwood area who most of whom happen to be veterans of world war one show up with weapons and offer their assistance to the sheriff to defend the courthouse from said white mob he declines their assistance asks for them to go home but the mob takes the appearance of a bunch of black men in cars with guns as the sign of a, quote, Negro uprising, end quote. Somewhere in all of this, someone shoots their gun off, and soon you have a large mob of angry white men chasing a smaller group of black men back towards the Greenwood section of the city. Everyone is shooting, and it goes downhill from there. Olivia at this point is six, and when the massacre starts... This is so freaking bleak, Michael. Okay. Yep. This can't end well. No, it really is not going to. This can't end well. Um, it was just one of those days, you know what I mean? Not that it matters, but like, it was just one of those days where just everyone's pissed for no reason. And it's hot. And, you know, nothing's going right. And you're just like stewing. And you just want to... Oh, God. And then they all got together and probably got drunk. And then they have guns. Oh, it's terrible. Okay. It's a great combination. She's six. I bet she's having a great day. Mm -hmm. So her mother sees a group of white men with torches and weapons approaching their house. So she hides. That's the scariest image of all time. Mm -hmm. She hides Olivia and her siblings under the kitchen table. The men break into their house. They smash the family's piano steal anything that looks valuable i'm so stressed out they burn her doll's clothing because they weren't being petty and vindictive enough and then they try to set the house on fire were they all a bunch of like 14 year old boys i thought these were like strong but that's like that's the behavior of a evil older brother really Mm -hmm. i mean like but you know they're already just checking all the boxes for mature thoughtful human beings on this day so they're just taking it one step extra and they ultimately don't end up burning their house down, but destroy pretty much anything valuable in it. And then in an interview that Olivia does with NPR later in her life, um, the thing that she describes as sort of being the most shocking about that day um, was seeing people whom you had never done anything to irritate, who just took it upon themselves to destroy your property because they didn't want you to have those things and they were teaching you a lesson. Which, in a sense, is sort of the the entirety of this day wrapped up into one statement. Because by mm. the end of the day, the mob had burned almost the entire neighborhood to the ground. Over 300 people are killed. Between eight and 10,000 people are homeless. And a, by the end of it, most of the Black families living there are going to end up moving away or spending years trying to rebuild it. And, like, who, 
I just know, like, no one felt good at the end of that day. Even the guys, like, doing the stupid stuff. You don't feel better when you do that. I just, I just, you know what I mean? Have you ever done that? Have you ever had a smaller occurrence where, like, you feel, you do the vindictive thing or you do the bad behavior? You never feel better after it. You feel like a piece of crap because you know you shouldn't have done that and you were mean and hostile and the worst part of yourself. So, like, on a basket, you don't feel better. You probably went and got drunk and tried to forget all the crappy things you do because you scared a seven-year-old hiding under a kitchen table. Ooh, big scary guy. Oh, my God. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Ugh. I, ugh. And in effect, ugh. like, they do end up forgetting it. It's an, it's one of these events um, with a lot of the racial violence in America in the 20th century that kind of gets unwritten in the history books. Like, it doesn't appear in most histories of the U.S. It doesn't really appear in any of the discussions about lynching or about racial violence, basically until the, like, 1980s. And so... Her family is one of the families that ends up moving away. So they eventually settle in Ohio, where her father works to rebuild the clothing business that they had had. Unsurprisingly, she suffers from nightmares and anxiety from that experience to the point where she's actually pulled out of school briefly by her mother. Cool. Cool. But she manages to graduate high school and attends Ohio State University. where She gets her bachelor's degree in 1937. I knew you'd like that. Yeah, I do. Go Ohio State. That's nice. Uh, um, and then she goes on to teach elementary school until 1944. This is World War II now, when FDR opens the female cores of the military to women of color. So oh, really, yeah, it so, happened that early. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I would have thought that would have been like a solidly like 1972 occurrence or something. Yeah, so it's this interesting thing where. The military... Because he's pretty awful, too. Like, he's... He kept a lot of things segregated for a long time. Yeah, and it it should be clear, still segregated. Like, it's not... The military won't get integrated until the early 1950s with Truman. But it sort of opens up all of the female auxiliary parts of the military to women of color. Because she had previously tried to enlist in the Waves, which is the Navy's auxiliary, but was consistently denied because of a technicality in that she was a black woman. So instead, she joins the Coast Guard in 1945. Coast Guard, surprisingly, super welcoming, really excited to have her, which just like, for me, I was... It feels like a trap. Right? It's not, though. Here's the great thing about it. The, the, sort of, the story she tells about it, which I really love, is that while her recruiter noted that, like, this is probably going to be challenging because she's obviously, like, one of the first women of color doing this, Hooker's concern is telling her mom about it. So she, the way she phrases it, that she didn't want to tell her mom because she was afraid she'd fly off the handle. So when the day came, she, like, sat her down over a cup of tea and was like, hi, mom. So, like, tomorrow I'm leaving for basic training to join the Coast Guard. And yeah, that's going to lessen the blow. Mm-hmm. But her mom, being the like super chill, great role model that she is, is like, if I was a young lady, I would have done that a long time ago. So mom is pretty on board. Good. And in the process of joining the Coast Guard, she becomes one of the first black women to officially serve in the military and the first to serve in the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. She's going to spend about a year and a half serving, mostly in Boston, working in an administrative office that processes discharge paperwork. So as people were coming back from serving overseas, they would sort of get processed through this office. And one of her last jobs before she gets discharged in 1946 is to process her own discharge paperwork, which is super meta. She's going to go on then to use the GI benefits that she gets from serving to attend grad school. She gets a master's degree from Columbia in education. And while there, she starts interning at a women's prison where she works with women who have developmental and learning disabilities. And she gets really interested in this kind of work. And it ends up becoming sort of her life's mission is doing both advocacy and research for people with disabilities. So she starts a PhD program at the University of Rochester in psychology, where she is the only woman and the only African-American person in her cohort. Yeah, that's fun. In upstate New York. Great. And her research for her PhD focuses on learning abilities for children with Down syndrome. But more generally, she's going to spend the rest of her professional career 
researching and working with children with disabilities. She gets her PhD in 61 and joins Fordham University's faculty in 63. She's going to work at Fordham until the mid-80s, doing research and advocacy work there. As part of that work, she helps found Division 33 of the American Psychological Association. The APA is really big on numbered divisions, apparently. Um, They've got, like, I think 40-something at this point, maybe. But division... What? Sorry, going back. Mm -hmm. Why the Coast Guard? That's a great question. Why was it, like, I need to help my country in this time? Was it, like, a service thing? And, like, that was the... I don't know, the the path she wanted to take? Or, like, was it... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the... Because it seems like education has been the constant mm-hmm. to then take us, you know, military... I don't know. Maybe she was just, like, interesting and had different interests, but... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're onto something with the service end of things. When she was in college, she was part of an effort to allow black women to serve in the Navy Auxiliary. That's ultimately less than successful. The Navy does ultimately agree to let her enlist, but at that point she's already in with the Coast Guard. And I think a big part of that is just that the Coast Guard was willing and was like not Mm. about to turn her away, where the Mm. Navy was super willing to turn her away, which is it's an experience that one of our other women, Jeanette Picard, had. She tried to enlist with the Navy Auxiliary during World War II as well, and was even though she was a white woman, I think at that point, either with a PhD or at least a master's degree, was similarly, like, consistently turned away. So, like, Navy hmm. doesn't have the best track record with uh, inclusivity in that regard. But, yeah, definitely it just seemed sort of like a service to her country thing, which is sort of even more admirable considering, like, how frequently her country was like, no, actually, we don't want you, before mm. she was able to serve. So she founds Division 33, which is focused on working with children with developmental disabilities. She retires from teaching in 1985, but continues to work as a school psychologist for the Fred Keller School, um, which is a preschool for children both with and without learning disabilities. And she's going to do that work until 2002. Just for context, birthday, 1915. So she is up there, but still working. (laughs) And at the same time that she's pursuing this professional career, she's also advocating for the survivors of the Tulsa massacre. So even though sort of immediately afterwards, there's a court case where several police officers and several African American men are tried for their role in the events. Unsurprisingly, all of the white people get off. And there's a book published by Mary Jones Parrish, who's an African American teacher, Massacre basically gets totally swept under the rug. But in the 90s, she becomes one of the founding members of a commission that's been charged to sort of re-examine the records around this event and try to come to a more accurate reckoning. And so this commission is going to spend four years from 1997 to 2001 collecting evidence and interview survivors. um, And it puts together a report that sort of for the first time officially details the scale of the events that happened in 1921. When they publish their report, they make a number of recommendations, scholarships for people living in the neighborhood now, a memorial, economic development funding, um, but perhaps most controversially, they recommend paying reparations to the survivors and their descendants. Whoa. Which, for anyone who has any knowledge of sort of American racial history reparations, is one of the sort of quote-unquote third rails of policy that is really touchy um, because people for some reason have a huge problem with that thought and by people I mean white people Yeah. but they recommend it um, in part because at this point <laughs> there still are a fair number of living survivors so in the same way that survivors of the Japanese internment programs received reparations payments they said that this would be a valid use of government money at the same time it, we should also be pretty clear that like at the time, the city government was a pretty active participant in it. Like, the police did absolutely nothing to stop it. Um, there's reports of police officers actively participating in the violence. The police end up arresting something like 6,000 African-American residents and detaining them without charge for days after the riot. So 
the, the city and the state were participating and owed something. Um, the state government, to their credit, passes a law shortly after that creates scholarships and authorizes funding both for economic development and for memorial, but does not offer any reparations payment. So hmm. in response to that, um, Hooker is one of the survivors who in 2003 sues the city and state government demanding that they honor the recommendations of the report, in particular payment of reparations. Whoa. Yeah. So the lawsuit gets dismissed because the statute of limitations has expired because in the state of Oklahoma, hate crimes have a two-year statute of limitation. So, That's you know, a stupid rule. Yes. And of course, because the state of Oklahoma was super interested in 1923 in prosecuting these, just got it all right the first time. Yeah. So she goes before Congress to testify in favor of removing that statute of limitation in order to allow for things to go forward. Sidebar. What is the benefit legally of a statute of limitations? So I only hear about it in the negative of why it exists, because inevitably, like a rapist gets off or these poor um, issues of like child abuse is let go because there's a statute of limitations on that. But what we're discovering is that trauma shouldn't have a statute of limitations because it can affect you mm -hmm. Um, later. But not to get too legalese right now, but like, do you know? I who the benefit is for one of the statute of limitations? I don't know the like legal underpinning of it. My only thought is that like it's a logistics thing. Like you set a statute of limitation because you're like not capable of doing the like administrative work of processing all of the crimes that have ever happened. So you set those statutes of limitation to keep the numbers manageable. But that, or is it something having to do with like you are entitled to a speedy trial? Is it something like that? Maybe I'm gonna see. So you can't have these like lingering. Yeah, I'm super curious. I'm trying to see if the internet has anything. Yeah, I think it. It seems like that is sort of the intention that like you are the thing is resolved within a reasonable amount of time. Which I guess holds you know police officers and and lawyers like accountable like you need to figure this out or like you won't be able to do the second part of justice about it you know what i mean like if you don't get this figured out now you can't just wait till you have time you have to be yeah i guess i only just hear about it on the other side of it when it kind of is negatively affecting people that have been victims of really horrific stuff yeah um, I'm with it's like well, the statute of limitations ran out, so you can't prosecute. Yeah, it's like, well, uh, we just found out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm on board with you. I think sidebar. It often just ends up like making people's lives more difficult. But mm. they tried to get it removed unsuccessfully. Unsurprisingly, Congress has not done anything about it. But no one's surprised about that. Um, they work so efficiently, too. I mean, like, and they're, they're just really good at getting stuff done. They are. It's a pretty shocking f- story you're telling right now that <laughs> Congress couldn't get anything done. I'm shocked by that. Yeah. not They're not doing great things now, and they weren't doing stellar in the early 2000s either. No. So sort of in wrapping up, there's this great moment of her. So in 2015, just before she turns 100... She's honored by President Obama at the Coast Guard Academy's commencement ceremony. And he describes her as, quote, a professor and a mentor to her students, a passionate advocate for Americans with disabilities, a psychologist counseling young children, a caregiver at the height of the AIDS epidemic, and a tireless voice for justice and equality. So That's a lot of moments. A lot of things. A lot of really excellent things. The Coast Guard is going to end up naming not one but two buildings after her. And they're going to do that breaking with a decades-old tradition that they only named ships and buildings after people who'd passed away. They're going mm-hmm. to break that tradition twice to name two buildings after her while she's still alive. Nice. She passes away on November 21st, 2018, at the age of 103. Jesus. And I really loved Jeez. this. That's so long. She, Yeah. Okay. Lived a long and full life. And her life motto is emblazoned on the wall of one of the Coast Guard buildings that is named after her. Mm-hmm. And it's love all, mm-hmm. trust few, and do right. 
which just feels like a perfect oh. encapsulation of her life. I love that she loves him, but she doesn't trust yep. him. Yep. I love that. She knows it. She's like, I love you. Don't trust you as far as I can throw you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well said. I mean, yeah. Do right. Yeah. Oh, I like her so much. She seems pretty great. That's a good one. Nice. How'd you find her? Gotta be honest, she was in the New York Times obituary a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. And seemed... I get it. You read the newspaper. Good for you, Michael. <laughs> Good job. I'm a nice East Coast liberal. I read my New York Times. You read your New York Times. You gotta stay up on the current events. Yeah, but was really fascinated and wanted to Aren't they ever just more. a little too New York for you, though? Do you know what I mean? All the time. Don't you ever get that bit where you're like, we get it. You're in the greatest city of all time. We get it. Yes. And especially their, like, op-ed pages. We we get that you get it. You know what I mean? You're the... You know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. I feel (laughs) Those guys. Mm -hmm. And that's why they all go to New York, and that's why they all stay there. Yeah. We're not biased or anything. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so say her... Wait, say her name one more time. Her name is Olivia Hooker. Olivia. I love that name. It's pretty quality. Yeah. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Okay, Michael. <laughs> I got this one from Henry Louis Gates Jr., who I watch on Finding Your Roots on PBS. Do you ever watch that show? I have not, but I've heard really interesting things about it. It's pretty good. It's uh, is uh, some of them are on Amazon Prime right now, uh, or you could just watch PBS because, as we all know, I love my PBS. Mm-hmm quality programming no commercials get on board um so it's a show where he takes guests and he kind of themes them together through like their heritage of what they want to discover about their past so he's done ones where like both of the guests didn't have fathers in their life and they kind of trace their ancestry back and he he does quite a bit with african-american guests in terms of like there's a there's a very certain um story that a lot of African Americans have in common and that is that you only go back to slavery and then you can't quite trace back so he does a lot of genetic testing anyway I'm getting off on the subject right now he is also like a professor at Harvard and does a lot with like African American history and the study of the African American experience in a very historical way and he discovered rediscovered this woman and so i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you about it i don't want to i don't want to spoil it i don't want to start in the middle i'm gonna start okay. at the beginning okay so in 1753 a young girl is born in west africa they think like gambia or senegal uh west africa's not fun to be in 1753 because a bunch of dudes like to come by on ships and take you to places that you did not consent to go they kidnap you they buy you from other people it's all very bad so she's all of seven when she is abducted and transported on a ship uh to boston she first goes to like the west well they uh everything i'm gonna say i don't like saying i'm just gonna say that at the top of this so i really i just want to say that okay so uh, she's apparently she because she's seven (laughs) and they think she probably has asthma so she's probably a little sickly coffin also you probably just don't thrive on a ship for months at a time when you're seven i'm so mad okay um anyway so she can't uh be sold i hate everything okay um she can't be sold for a good price in the south or in like the west indies so they take her up to boston where they hope that they these like monsters that are running the ship um they hope they can get uh, i hate this they hope they can get a good price for a seven-year-old that's what i'm trying to say i hate this so much okay Mm -hmm. she's seven i hate it she should have a doll okay um so she's uh, not doing great. By coincidence, uh, coincidence, I don't know. The people that change her life, the Wheatleys, show up and they are looking to um, have a servant in their home. And they're like, oh, this little girl will do fine. And she's cheap because she's ill. So great. 
What should we name her? Okay, she came over on the boat called the Phyllis, and we are the Wheatleys, so she's going to be Phyllis Wheatley. What a great way to get a new identity. The boat you came over on. (sighs) Slide two, you guys, and I'm already seething. Anyway, um, so she gets there. She's, you know, she finds the Wheatleys. They're not horrible. I mean, they still bought her. But so the Wheatley family, they're like middle class merchants. They're from Massachusetts. Now we get complicated. So whether it was her precocious nature and like winning personality or their kind of progressive-ish vibe, Mm -hmm. somehow she starts to read and they're like, oh, she likes reading. Let's give her more books. Oh, okay. We're chill with this. Let's get her books. Uh, Let's get her more books. Let's give her a pen. Let's teach her how to write. She seems to like it. And it's either like her aptitude at it, at being very good and inc- and thriving on it, or it seems to be a combo in the like literature written about her. Um, they don't dissuade it. They don't do what you would think a white person who owns another person would do in a circumstance like that. They don't free her. They don't treat her like a daughter necessarily or anything like that, but they... They definitely, like, allow it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So much so that they eventually, by the age of 12, she's reading Greek, Latin, all the classics, and difficult passages of the Bible. And at age 14, she writes her first poem to the University of Cambridge in New England. Wow. And she is quite possibly, I mean, I think a savant of the time. Or she's just really into reading. We're not really sure. She's, um... <laughs> I mean... Having studied ancient Greek at like nineteen, mm-hmm. that shit's hard. Yeah, that shit's real and hard. she's uh the Wheatley children are learning side by side and also helping her as she grows up. So Nathaniel and Mary also have stories of like helping her through their studies, like as they're learning. They're, she's learning alongside them in a lot of ways. Now, there's also an element of like. Oh my, look at this little girl and how she reads. What a novelty. Exoticism. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of yes. mm, mm, it doesn't taste great, this story. Mm-mm. So she doesn't seem to mind. She just likes to read and write and is is very encouraged by prose and poetry of the time. Now, I just want to be clear, she is still a slave at this point. She is still not free. They don't free her. She's part of the household. She's got duties. But uh, there's stories of the Wheatleys uh, showing her abilities to friends and family. And it's also important to note that they are in Massachusetts, which of the colonies is definitely like less, more, I don't know. It's all bad, but it's different than the south i don't know yeah different than the south is probably the best you can say there's more exposure to abolitionists probably in the north at this time and uh she is very influenced in her work by other poets she loves homer and virgil and milton and alexander pope and so she really starts to thrive on writing poetry which is not a topic that i'm super enjoy as a person but of this time, poetry is like a big deal and definitely like a, a, a sign of elitism. It's a sign of like the whole neoclassical movement, the obsession with the Greeks, all of that kind of stuff. So the fact that she's thriving in what is seen as like the most elite version of linguistics is like sort of a marvel of the time. Uh, she wrote, is said, exceptionally mature if conventional verse and was just kind of fascinating character. She writes these kinds of poems, which were very popular at the time, where if somebody passed away of note, there would be these epic poems written about them as a form of like elegy or like in memoriam. Mm -hmm. And she, she starts to like be of fashion by writing these and she starts to gain note. So at 13, her first poem appears in print on Messrs. Hussey and Coffin in 1767. Haven't read it. I'm sure it was great. There's only so much I can do to prepare for this. Um, But she doesn't become widely known until the publication of an 
elegiac, uh, elegiac, 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 elegiac poem on the death of the celebrated divine George Whitefield, which I'm sure is a page turner. Once again, (laughs) didn't read it, but I'm sure she did a great job. She wrote it in 1770. She was 17. 18th century poetry is not your jam. I'm taking it. I mean, I have some quotes from her, but I definitely like gleaned. Um, <laughs> this was a tribute to a popular preacher, with, uh, and she might have known him, so it was a little more personal. Um, so she gets, she starts to get some cred. Now, here's okay. Now I'm gonna get mad again. So she has some occurrences where she writes about the status of being an African American in the Americas. What I think is important is like, as we look at her now, there's a lot of talk of like, she doesn't, she doesn't, you know, discredit white people. And she, she does, she speaks favorably of being enslaved and how, and I don't think that's quite fair. I mean, I'm not as well versed in her, you know, writing as these people are that wrote these articles, but at the same time, she's writing this stuff as a young child who, is still enslaved. So there's a certain amount of danger of just letting it rip at a thing you shouldn't technically even be doing, according to a lot of people, to begin with. So yeah, she maybe doesn't poke the bear at all of 16 with the fire that you would like her to. But I I can't imagine, like, that's, that's a pretty bold ask for, like, a 16-year-old girl. Um... And she she generally avoided the topic of slavery, but she definitely writes about freedom, as that is a topic of uh, considerable focus at this point in the Americas. Mm-hmm. She writes on being brought from Africa to America in 1768, and I'm just I'm quoting: "Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train." So she does write about her people as being needed to go on this like journey with everyone to the freedom that America is pursuing from the British. And maybe there's also, you know, she, I feel like she's always like, and you also could make us free as well. You would like freedom. Maybe we all would like free. You know, she's trying to like subtly hint mm-hmm. at like, yeah, freedom sounds good. Doesn't it? Mm. The Egyptians and the Israelites. Okay, no, you're not ready for this conversation. Okay, well, I'll just be over here. Some scholars, like I said, like they view her as maybe not speaking the right message for our time now, looking back. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, other scholars are like, yes, but if you read this as if she's being really sarcastic, then she's kind of on point, Um, which I think is an interesting way to take it. So... 1773, um, Nathaniel, who is the son of her owner, takes her to London. It was thought that in London, she might find a different audience because Boston and Massachusetts wasn't really ready for her to get published. She couldn't find anybody that would publish her work, but she's clearly getting, like, her work is popular or should be popular by all accounts. Mm -hmm. So she finds this, like, countess or... I don't know, hobnobby lady who decides to sponsor her. There's definitely an um, an amount of exoticism of like, look at this. Oh, she's like a savant, but also like maybe black people can be as smart as white people. Everything we know is wrong and hateful and totally based on not reality. This is a lot to swallow in one person. Let's put it all on her. Anyway. Yeah, she does great in London. Uh, She does get her book published she goes back to boston she wants it published in america and a bunch of boston dudes were like i don't buy it i don't think you can write and i think it's all a gimmick i think these londoners were fooled by you so what we need you to do no no we need you to come come on into the courtroom me and 14 of my friends are gonna sit here and we're gonna quiz you we're going to quiz you on what you know. And after no. that quiz, if you're right, then maybe we'll publish it. So she's like, whatever. And she goes in and they quiz her. I did not see what they quizzed her on. I assume they asked her about Ovid and made her speak uh, uh, bits and bobs of 
stuff that she knew. Anyway, uh, it's all patronizing and hateful, and she slays it. And they were like, oh, well, I guess you do get to publish this book now, and we will all sign it. So on her published poems in the Boston edition or whatever, they have by the decree of like the elders of Boston, we um, validate and basically like, don't worry guys, we vetted her, we checked it out. I know you can't believe it, but this little black girl actually can read and write. Can you even? I mean, I can. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Sincerely, John. Sincerely, John Hancock. Yes, that one. He was there. He did it too. Uh, anyway, she does get her poems published. This effectively makes her the first African American who has ever had a book published in America. It's the first, it's the genesis of African American literature on the continent. Wow. Pretty remarkable. Really screwed up way to get it, but pretty remarkable. So they, yeah, uh, stupid. I, I was going to quote what they actually said in it, but it made me so mad that I deleted it. You can look it up yourself. It's stupid. Um, Boston just can't believe that she's really the author. How? How? It's it's remarkable. Um, my quote here is, <laughs> my note to myself is, I, I was like, it says some pretty stupid shit. Okay. Um, she... Writes this ode to the newly appointed George Washington, who now leads the Continental Army. It's a bit fluffy. I have read this. It's a bit um, flattering. I think she knew her audience, and she was like, celestial orbs, and like all this like very fancy Grecian imagery. And uh, coincidentally, it uh, it gets his attention. Can you believe it? Ooh. And... Um, he he's very like smitten by the the words that she decides to write and then he finds out who wrote them and she he's kind of like uh kind of freaks out about it but then um he writes back to her which is like a huge win for her to get uh, noticed by this man who coincidentally owned about 100 300 slaves so anyway i find it interesting that a slave owning person said this about it. I would have published the poem had I not been apprehensive that while I only meant to give the world this new instance of your genius, I might have incurred the imputation of vanity. So he didn't want to be seen as like a, look how great I am. Phyllis Wheatley thinks I'm pretty great. But he also like took the time to write to her and call her a genius. So everything is gray is what I'm saying. He owned people, and yet he thought she was a genius. But he also liked it because she wrote about him. Anyway. Yeah, it's yeah, it's problematic. I mean, it's also important. I learned this, is that the British tried to persuade enslaved people to fight for them against the colonists by promising them freedom. Yeah. So there's a very real political issue of, like, black people being pro-colonies versus British because like you could go be free over here or you could fight for the freedom of your mm, owner master I don't like any of those words but you know what I mean it's all hard yeah it's all complicated Mr. and Mrs. Wheatley die in like the 1770s and um she sort of lost a big advocate for her livelihood because without kind of white Ugh, I hate everything. Uh, without kind of people sponsoring her to validate her, and she's left to like put herself forward, it's it's hard because like y- you can barely get in rooms to begin with, let alone like without your white people. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. all the people that would buy her work won't accept her on her own. Mm-hmm. So she ends up marrying John Peters, a free black man. And she continues to write, but she definitely declines in her output and um, becomes very sickly. She has three children. They die very young. She doesn't do well. She ends up passing away pretty young at the age of 31. Yeah, she was left to support herself as both a poet and a seamstress. Both, uh, there were two books issued uh, posthumously. A bunch of collection of poems, a short biography of Phyllis is a preface of it, and there's a picture, an illustration of her, 
as well. Um, she was only 31, which I find kind of scary because I am 31. Oh, God. Um, it was uh, interesting that her work was kept around in the knowledge of America because it was used as a way for abolitionists to make a cause mm. of, like, you cannot say that people... There's no, like, eugenics argument in abolitionists. Like, it's not possible because how can you say that they are a less than race when we have the poetry of Phyllis Wheatley supported by the word of George Washington. Like, how can you deny that? You know what I mean? It was cited as a way to also promote the benefit of education Mm -hmm. as a great equalizer. Yeah. And uh, she's the first African-American poet, really. And the first African-American woman to publish a book in the United States. I think the first African-American to publish a book in the United States. I could be wrong about that. Um, And then I found out about this really cool memorial in Boston Hmm. called the Boston Women's Memorial. Um, Really great name. And it's three women in statue form in various poses. I think they're made of like bronze or brass or something. And she is one of them. She's there with Abigail Adams and Lucy Stone. Abigail Adams, as we know, is the second first lady and the first second lady of the United States. Um, I see what you did there. Yeah, you're welcome. Lucy Stone was, uh, I think she was a major suffragette in like the 1800s. And then Phyllis Wheatley is there. And she's sort of like perched behind. It's a really cool sculpture. She's sort of perched behind a desk or like a stone that is at the level of a desk. She has a quill in her her hand. And you can kind of like just stand there face to face with her. But she's like looking off thinking of a poem with a big quote of hers on the front of it about imagination. It took the image of it from the illustration that's on her um, book of poems. And then I just want to read a couple lines because you'll get a feel for poetry of the 18th century. Imagination, who can sing thy force? Or who describe the swiftness of thy course? Soaring through air to find the bright abode, thy imperial palace of the thundering god. We on thy pinions can surpass the wind and leave the rolling universe behind. From star to star the mental optics rove, measure the skies and range the realms above. There in one view we grasp the mighty whole, or with new worlds amaze the unbound soul. So there you go. Phyllis Wheatley. Very cool. Very Never knew that. Thank you, Henry Louis Gates, for bringing her up to me, because I never knew she even existed. And apparently, like, her poems are taught in literature classes, but I never had to read her for, like, American literature. I'm trying to think. We, I think, speaking also of PBS, there was a great animated PBS series when I was a kid, I think called Liberty Kids. I can't quite remember the mm-hmm. title, but it's basically, like, it's three kids during the American Revolution who just happen, mm-hmm. coincidentally, to meet a number of major historical figures and have conversations with them where you learn about those major historical figures. And one of the people nice. they meet when they're chilling in Boston is Phyllis Wheatley. Do they really? Yeah. I love that. It was very cool. But... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? It's continuing in our nice problematic stream of she, you know, celebrated as this great American literary pioneer. Well, and like she reminded me as you were talking about Hattie McDaniel of like she maybe didn't speak as aggressively as some people would want her to of her time. She said a lot of things that are complicated about the world that she was living in and the circumstances of people like her. And yet at the same time, she unequivocally like did a lot of good by just being herself and like I don't know. It's yeah. just all it's all kind of I'm just glad there's enough out there to kind of learn about or the fact that you have work from both of them to kind of look back on and make your own judgment about. Yeah. And hearing people's different interpretations of it now. Like yes, the super problematic version is there, but I think there's a lot of other gleaning what am I trying to say? Uh, there's a lot of different messages that can come through, too, mm-hmm. in a more complicated lens. Definitely. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I still much. don't like 18th, or 18th century. I still Eight. don't like 18th century poetry, though. It's okay. I 
It's a lot of chariots and muses and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, my freshman year of college, I had like an 18th century literature class, some of which was deeply fascinating. Poetry was not so much. Not for you? Not for me. And I like, like, I like poetry. I enjoy a good poem. Um, Mm. Pre, most of it is aggravating to me. It's never spoken to me in a way that's probably, or I don't know. I never had a good teacher. I don't know. It's never found the poem that was like, yeah, this is my jam. Yeah. It's, I think it is sort of that thing about like finding the poem or the poet or the teacher who gets you into it. The same, like right. The same way with plays, like you can read a bunch of plays in school and hate them. And then you like see a good novels, I guess, or books, you know? Yeah. Literature generally. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now we have some corrections. What's your correction about champagne, Michael? What did Anna say? I misspoke about the laws about bourbon branding in Kentucky. There are not laws about it, but there is strictly held custom and tradition, which people from Kentucky will get mad at you if you misstate Mm -hmm. about. Thank you, Anna, for that Mm -hmm. correction. Do they know that? Because they really treat it as if it's law. (laughs) Or maybe they're just drunk on bourbon. Um, and then mine is, I yelled about uh, Venus or Aphrodite. I said Aphrodite, didn't I? Didn't I say Venus? I Aphrodite. Aphrodite. They're the same person. They're the same person. Greek or Roman, who gives a shit? You can okay. put that in. <laughs> <laughs> it's still the goddess of love coming out of a stupid shell. Why does she have red hair? That's so weird. Because she's fiery and tempestuous. <laughs> Who painted that? That wasn't it. It was Botticelli, too. Yeah. I think I said Da Vinci. I was all kind of wrong <laughs> on that art. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, way to fact check. Thanks. Keep me honest, Jen. That was good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History. Missing History.